0: Our first reading this evening comes from Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soared their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes... I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches."
1: The second reading is taken from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, to be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the children.
2: There was a young boy who grew up on a farm, and one of the annual tasks that he always found interesting was the chicken harvest, and it is as gruesome as it sounds. This was just something he considered to be fascinating and something that happened every time that he couldn't get his head around. The chickens would be caught early in the morning and taken to his grandmother and she would methodically remove all of their heads. Here's where the amazing part happened, or at least as far as this kid was concerned. With their heads gone, they would run around the yard like crazy and he just couldn't believe it. So once he asked, why do the chickens do that? The answer... They don't know that they're dead yet. This evening we're going to focus on the church that was a little bit like a bunch of chickens running around with their heads cut off who didn't know that they were dead yet. This is the last of the seven churches of Revelation. A couple of them have had good points but there have been serious problems in most of them. The downward spiral that began with the loss of the first love in Ephesus ends in Laodicea with a church who was so far from God that he wanted to, it literally made him sick. And before we get too far in it, into it, it's worth reminding ourselves that these are real letters to real churches who had real problems, but that they can speak to every Christian and every church who reads them today. But to help us figure out what this particular letter is saying to us, I want us to think a little bit about the background of the church in Laodicea. This city was founded by Antiochus II sometime before 253 BC it was named after his wife Laodice the city was located on a high plateau plateau, and was very secure from enemy attack but it did have one problem, it didn't have its own water supply, it had to get it in from elsewhere water had to be piped in through aqueducts and some came from the hot uh, springs in Hierapolis six miles to the north And it was brought into the city and some was piped in from Colossae, which was 10 miles to the east. And we'll come back to that bit later on. But Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in 61 AD. But the city was so wealthy that it refused any help from Caesar to rebuild. And it just did it because it could afford to itself. The city was famous in its day for three things. The first of which was finance. It was a centre of banking and finance known throughout the Roman Empire for its uh, financial power. It was known for fashion. It was renowned for the soft black wool that it produced there. The wool was considered a luxury item and it was sought after for clothing and for rugs. Laodicea was a centre of fashion in its day. The new styles were there first. And pharmaceuticals. There was a famous medical school in Laodicea which produced a tablet that was sold all over the Roman Empire. It was crushed and mixed with water to form some sort of paste. And rubbed into the eyes, it was meant to cure all sorts of eye problems. So we've let that in mind. Let's look at what this letter was about. First of all, there were real problems in Laodicea. In most letters, there's at least something good to say to the churches before pointing out the bad. But in this case, there's nothing that Jesus has to say to them that's good. He simply points out the problems as he sees them. And the first problem is the problem of passion. Jesus tells them that he's like they're like the water in their city. They become lukewarm. I don't know about you, but I don't think a brew's a brew unless it's red hot and burns your mouth. And if I want a cold drink... I prefer it filled with ice. It has to be cold. I can't drink stuff that's lukewarm. That's not how it should be. And given that it's been Roald Dahl Day, on Tuesday this week, I think it was, it's only right I share with you something that he said. He said, I began to realise how important it was to be an enthusiast in life. If you're interested in something, no matter what it is, go for it full speed. Embrace it with both arms. Hug it, love it, and above all, become passionate about it. Lukewarm is no good. As I said before, the water had to be brought into the city by aqueducts from the hot springs six miles away. And by the time that it reached Laodicea, it was barely lukewarm. Cold water from Colossus ten miles away, that was also lukewarm by the time it reached the city. The cold water that was in Colossus was cold and refreshing, the warm waters in Herapolis were soothing. They both had use. But lukewarm waters of Laodicea, well, they were good for nothing. And perhaps the message that Jesus is conveying here is that for the Christians in Laodicea to, be, to have a use, to be good for something. Perhaps that's why Jesus is saying, I wish you were either hot or cold. He isn't saying, I'd rather have you totally against me or anything like that. But he's saying, don't be lukewarm. He's saying, I wish you were good for something, either cold and refreshing or hot and healing. The church in the Odysseus had become lukewarm. They'd lost their passion for Jesus. They were indifferent. They were probably just going through the motions. They probably weren't very much moved by the things of God. Indifferent to the cross of Jesus Indifferent to the word of God They were indifferent to those around them Who didn't know Jesus for themselves The church in Laodicea was not burning with passion for Jesus But they weren't refreshingly cold either They were somewhere in between The church of Laodicea should be no longer worthless Lukewarm or apathetic That's what Jesus is saying Instead he needed them to be effective in the kingdom And the same is true for us Wouldn't God rather have us be hot like the waters um, that bring healing to the spiritually sick? Wouldn't he rather have it that we were cold and refreshing um, like the waters that bring um, bring about a refreshment that can only come through Christ? An ineffective church, Jesus is saying, is worthless. The church isn't just a social club. It's not just something we do from time to time. It's got a distinct message to pass on to others. And it's got a job Of introducing people to Jesus, of being passionate about serving Him, of being anything but lukewarm. C.S. Lewis said, "The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Your faith can't be moderately important. It's got to be more than that. It deserves every part of your life and to be of the most importance." Are you lukewarm? God knows everything we do, good and bad. He knows if we're hot or cold, he knows if we're lukewarm. Being lukewarm is a problem because lukewarm is of no use. So what does Jesus say we need to do about it? What is the solution that he offers? As we said already, Laodicea was a wealthy city and it took great pride in that fact. It was so rich that following the earthquake that it had, it refused financial aid from Caesar because they didn't need his money. Jesus knows their assumptions about themselves and he says to them, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. The problem is that this letter informs them that they do not realise the reality of their situation. The truth of the matter is that they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. That doesn't sound like a good description for a church, does it? And this represents a number of problems in the church. The church wasn't very distinct from the culture that it lived in. It was a wealthy city and there were wealthy members of the church. They probably thought a lot about themselves. And they thought they were a bit special because they had everything they could possibly want. Like the non-Christians surrounding them in the city, they took great pride in the physical. They relied on themselves for everything because they didn't need for anything. The church in the Odyssey had a false view of itself. They had confidence in themselves, but perhaps too much. Perhaps they'd lost their dependence on God, or at least that's the impression that we get, which can happen far too easily. Which is why Jesus tells them to be to buy refined gold. They thought they were rich, but really they were poor. The problem was that they... It's not that they were ignorant about their financial well-being. The problem was a spiritual problem. Though they were rich in the eyes of the world... Spiritually speaking, they were poor. So Jesus told them to buy refined gold, white clothes, and salve for the eyes. The refined gold solved their poverty problem. The white clothes would solve their nakedness problem. And the eye salve would remedy the blindness problem. However, I don't reckon these instructions were practical advice to the Laodiceans. Their banking centre included a gold exchange... But it wasn't from there they were told to purchase gold. It was from Jesus himself. That's like saying they were going to the wrong place to find their wealth. They were investing in the wrong things. They were to such an extent that their whole allegiance was wrong. They were devoted to their wealth when they should have been devoted to Jesus. It's no good being wealthy but being spiritually poor. Jesus is worth far more than anything precious we might own. So what about the white linens? Why were they told to buy those? Well, as I mentioned before, it was a textile centre. And so Jesus spoke about that too, <coughs> instructing them to buy white clothes to wear. It was black wool, which was woven into clothing, that was prominent in the area. So sending them to buy white linens was a contrast to this. White was symbolic of purity, and they were told to buy these to cover their nakedness. Jesus instructed them to buy white clothes, which would stand out uh, in a culture wearing dark clothes. They were to stand out from society. They were to put on purity. And the third thing they were told to buy was eye salve. In Laodicea, an eye salve that they had uh, was made from local stone and it was said to be a miracle remedy for weak eyes. I doubt the problem in Laodicea was physical blindness. If you were to go there, I'm sure everybody could see absolutely fine. But they were spiritually blind. Jesus is telling them essentially, I know about the eye salve in Laodicea, which is so well known, of which the people use to help impaired vision. But you come to me and buy some eye salve, which will help you see things more clearly. Laodicea had a problem with their focus. They could see, but to many things they were blind. They couldn't see the most important things, They were blinded and needed their sight to be restored. And the last thing they were told to do was to repent and be zealous. It's those he loves who he disciplines, which is what it also says in that letter. And they are told to repent. And notice the other word, be zealous. This would be in direct contrast to the state of lukewarmness that they were in already. And this command is relevant for us too. We need to be zealous. It's easy to lose your zeal and become a bit complacent about things. People get excited about all sorts of things these days. It was once said that the core problem is not that we're too passionate about bad things, but we're not passionate enough about good things. We need to be passionate about our faith. Jesus calls us to be passionate. So there were the problems. The church was lukewarm, and as we know, lukewarm was of no use. But what was said next? where we've got Jesus standing at the door and knocking. So often we think of this passage as referring to non-Christians, and I've used it in that context many times myself. But actually, the key to this passage, Jesus wasn't addressing non-Christians. He was addressing the church. He was talking to a lukewarm church. Jesus was seeking entrance back into his church because the church was no longer passionate about him as they once were. He was seeking his way back into the church in order that it might change from being lukewarm to being absolutely passionate. Do we open the door to Jesus as quickly and unreservedly as we should? Is he welcome here? I'd like to think so. But do we welcome him on our own terms or on his? It should be. It would be easy to welcome him if doing so meant that we didn't have to change anything or do anything differently. But welcoming Jesus so unreservedly, we need to do so unreservedly rather. Welcome him with everything. Jesus should be Lord of our lives, which means he should have total control. That's total control of our, over our lives individually. Total control over our lives as a church. Can we honestly say that we give him full control over those things? Can we honestly say he has full control in our lives and full control here in our church? Do we seek him in everything that we do or do we keep some things back for ourselves? There are loads of reasons we might choose to keep hold of some things. It could be because we've always done things a certain way or it could just be that we're unaware of the need but we're called to let Jesus into our lives and let him rule in our lives and rule in our church. We're called to conform to his likeness and not the other way around. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, waiting for his church to let him back in, to reignite our passion, to refocus our vision once more. When the people of Laodicea looked at themselves, I bet they thought they had it all sorted. They were wealthy, they were powerful, they had everything they needed and then some. They must have looked at the power that they had, And thought they'd arrived. But they were indifferent. They were apathetic. They were closed off to Jesus and blind to how things really were. Like the chickens at the start, they perhaps didn't know they were dead yet. What they needed more than any material possessions. More than any buildings or money or anything like that. Or any of the things that we so readily place our pride in. They needed Jesus. The same is true for us. We need him, we must seek him, we must welcome him. And the good news is that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, knocking in an effort to get back into his church. He says, I stand at the door and knock. He stands there and he knocks. And it could be said, I'm continually standing at the door and I'm continually knocking on the door. It's not a one-time thing. He never gives up his efforts to enter into the lives of his people and he also says, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, the key word there is any. Jesus needs any of us. He's there for every single one of us, wants us to welcome, in, welcome him in to our lives again. I'm sure you all know of Holman Hunt's famous painting, which depicts Jesus standing outside a door with a light in his hand. He's knocking on the door, and when that painting was first finished, a man looked at it and commented to the painter, you made a mistake. Holman Hunt said, where's the mistake? The critic said, you forgot to paint a handle on the outside of the door. The response was, there is no mistake. The handle's on the inside. Jesus knocks, but you must open the door. Many times I've heard it said that Jesus is a gentleman. He will knock and he will call, and he will not break, but he will not break down the door. It must be open from the inside for him to be able to enter in. And what happens when he comes in? Well, we're told that we will eat with him and he with me. The ancient Greeks enjoyed three meals. They usually ate a large breakfast, a smaller dinner or lunch for you guys. And they then leisurely ate an evening meal, which they called supper. And this evening meal, the family would take their time. They would talk and they would have fellowship together. It was a time of real intimacy together. Jesus says, if you will just open the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with you. Jesus wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to guide us and lead us and he wants, to be, wants us to be passionate about him. It's up to us whether we will adjust our focus once more, making the whole ruler over the whole of our lives and ruler over the church. He stands at the door and knocks. All we have to do is open it. Let's spend a moment or two of silence as we think about the parts of our lives which we might need to let Jesus take full control of once again.